0: Thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. As we record this episode, the 2022 Winter Olympics are underway in Beijing. These amazing athletes have been competing for years for a chance to stand atop the podium. For many, the training is physical and mental, and sleep plays a key role. To help us understand the unique sleep needs of athletes is Dr. Jeff Dermer. Dr. Dermer is Chief Medical Officer of Knox Health and a sleep advisor to the U.S. Olympic weightlifting team. Welcome to Talking Sleep, Dr. Dermer.
1: Thank you so much, Seema. Happy to be here.
0: So tell me about your role with the U.S. Olympic weightlifting team. That's very cool.
1: Yeah, it's not your average sort of run-of-the-mill thing for a sleep neurologist, right? So um, my background is, is actually in sports, and uh, I was an athlete myself and um, always interested in, in um, things like uh, uh, Olympic-level or elite-level athletics. And so I uh, was uh, brought into the Olympic movement, as you say, with uh, the understanding that I'd work with the U.S. Olympic weightlifting team. Um, as part of their performance uh, program. So every um, different team, every U.S. Olympic team, has its own performance-based uh, groups for nutrition and physical therapy. And um, this, the uh, weightlifting team included uh, sleep. And so for the last five years, I've been working with the U.S. Olympic weightlifting team and the USAW, which is the uh, United States of America weightlifting team. Um, to help them with performance, so that's what I do.
0: Oh, that's very cool. So, how does it work? I mean, are you are you traveling mm-hmm. with the team like the orthopedic surgeon, or how does that work?
1: Yeah, not a team doc like an orthopedic surgeon. <laughs> although I, I do I do work with a lot of orthopedic surgeons and a lot of chiropractors and physical therapists. Um, my job is really to help organize uh, the circadian timing of workouts and camps as well as help to organize um, eating and a number of other circadian-based activities for individual athletes um, in the the program. So the people who live everywhere in the United States, including Hawaii, and so they're all in different time zones. And when Mm. they have to go to a meet someplace like Romania, that really does incur a number of changes for each individual uh, based on their uh, circadian rhythm themselves, but also where they're headed. And then on top of that, there's all the other sleep-related issues that they uh, contend with, with this major travel uh, to these international destinations. There's a lot of sleep deprivation and just uh, difficulty getting adjusted. So I work with each individual um, before they end up going to a competition. Now, for the big competitions, like the the Olympics and uh, for national level or international level world uh, uh, competitions, I will tend to go with the team to those destinations or close to those destinations so that I can help uh, with last-minute adjustments, coordination, questions. Um, So I end up kind of playing um, a bit of a conductor role, let's say. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So
0: how much of what you do then is um, kind of more classical sleep medicine, identifying and treating sleep disorders versus kind of sleep coaching and circadian rhythm regulation?
1: Yeah, so most of what I do um, starts off with like every quad, we'll say. So every four years, they call them quads in the Olympic world. Okay. Um, so we're in a now, not, not really a quad for Paris, it's more of a triad of <laughs> three years because of COVID. Um, but during that quad, uh, it's, it starts off with um, basic education about sleep, about circadian rhythms. Um, getting people knowledge and education. So I do webinars with the team and webinars at, at different meets and uh, meet with different coaches to set, help answer questions because a lot of the the basics around sleep and circadian rhythms are just not well understood. And oftentimes they have information from you know the web <laughs> and that information is not accurate oftentimes and they're, they're kind of going with the wrong information. So my job is to level set Um, And start off with that. And and it's really kind of a a fun way to start because the questions that you get, and I'm sure you have as many, all of us in sleep medicine have gone to cocktail parties and all of a sudden everybody's asking you about their (laughs) sleep. It sort of has that effect. So giving everybody a chance to understand level set and then ask questions that kind of leads to the next level. In, in our quad, which is individual uh, individuals themselves giving me information about their own natural circadian rhythm. So I tend to use like the morning, this evening, this questionnaire or versions of that to get a sense of every athlete's uh, proclivity for uh, their chronotype. And that helps me adjust their schedules and their timing and their workouts and even talk to them about their eating schedules in a way that's more personalized. And on top of that, I also use another... Uh, set of tools from clinical science and clinical research that just give me a sense of their behavior. So I use mm. the um, athletic behavioral sleep questionnaire and a couple of other uh, pretty standard questionnaires about sleep and behavior so that I can see just how bad these young, healthy athletes are <laughs> at, at, at avoiding things like the traps everyone have with computers and iPhones and mobile devices, which tends to be the biggest problem we have.
0: So, so is that kind of the same approach you have with every team? I mean, it sounds like you kind mm-hmm. of have this stepwise plan.
1: Yeah, I've, I've systematized this. I kind of uh, uh, cut my teeth in this world working with professional athletes. So my first real foray into um, a big population of, of high-level athletes as sort of their performance, sleep performance director was with the Atlanta Falcons. Um, mm. And that was about a almost a decade ago and uh, started working with the team doctor while I was at Emory, um, uh, Dr. Karras, really wonderful orthopedic surgeon. And um, he saw the value and understood the value of sleep personally as a surgeon, but also uh, from the medical perspective, very open-minded intelligent guy. And he brought it up with the, the, the folks at the, uh, at the Atlanta Falcons and they said, wow, this is, we didn't even think about this. So it was a meeting, a discussion, um, and then meeting with Marty Luzon and their their team of uh, uh, of physical therapists and uh, therapy folks, and uh, we just started a program. and I came up with the idea of you know of sort of getting. Basic understandings, basic population metrics about the, the the team. So everybody answered some basic questionnaires about sleep, sort of like doing a clinical research trial, mm-hmm. and approached you know the hundred or so people that are on that team, including coaches, with these uh, standardized questionnaires, and it gave me some really great insights into folks that are having issues potentially with. Um, not just their performance but their sleep but then we find that oh yeah they're having performance issues or recovery issues and then i could use that information to have individual discussions and almost like a consultation uh, with with an individual to get to the the root of their personal issues with sleep which can vary very much as i (laughs) i -hmm. saw by position even so you have like quarterbacks and position players who are very, very serious and almost like insomnia driven, you know, performance people. And then on the other side, folks that are in different positions, like uh, especially our defensive backs that were, you know, cutting records in the middle of the night and doing rap music. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> you got your delayed sleep phase in the backfield. You got your, your advanced sleep phase at quarterback, you know, so you got to kind of deal with all these different, um, these different types. Um, And it was really fun because they were this was one of the first years that when I started doing this with the Falcons, they moved the schedule to go to London Mm. to play a game. It was against the Detroit Lions in London. And so there was all of this discussion we're going to the East. It's how many days ahead of time should we go? And so I started giving them all of the basic science around, you know, an hour per time zone and how that might uh, be a, a general rule. But we need to kind of tailor this for the individuals and when they get there and where they're living and how they adjust to the time zone change before they get there, um, using things like sleep banking uh, to help improve. Uh, their performance, despite some of the sleep deprivation they might have on the travel, so it was really interesting. Uh, you know, trying to take out of the science the basic concepts that um, seem to be effective, and then use them in a real-world situation, uh, which uh, to me was the way we kind of started the whole idea of structuring approaches to sleep and performance with with teams.
0: So, tell me more about sleep banking.
1: Sleep banking, yeah. So one of my favorites. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Sleep banking itself is something that uh, the military has used and there's been a number of uh, articles published on this, uh, but also in different um, professional sports teams as well and and other uh, arenas where sleep deprivation is is notable. Uh, Before the the sleep deprivation period, before you go into the, the venue where you know your sleep is not going to be normal, if you come into that situation with having slept maybe three thirty to sixty minutes more on an average night uh, for a week or so before that engagement, you tend to actually perform better. So, in some ways, the homeostatic drive for, uh, associated with sleep deprivation is doesn't create uh, such a significant performance deficit, either cognitive or physical, um, with a little additional sleep uh, in the tank, so to say. Mm-hmm. Now the understanding of exactly how that works um, from the basic neurophysiology is not quite clear because there's a lot of different um, theories around why that might be a benefit. Some, you know, it's c- consistent with ideas that uh, we all have a certain amount of individual variability uh, in our response to co- to sleep deprivation. And by increasing sleep time, at least if your sleep quality and, and duration are normalized, um, you may be actually creating a buffer um in some people with uh, who are more vulnerable to sleep loss whereas in others it's not necessarily that helpful but um overall in the population that's going to go through sleep deprivation it could be a benefit to those individuals that that do uh find that they get more impacted by uh, sleep deprivation
0: so is that so you know when i was doing my research i came across this term mm-hmm. and i'll admit i've never heard of this but is that the mm-hmm. same then as sleep doping
1: Yeah. Sleep doping. No, I, I think I may have coined that phrase (laughs) inadvertently when I was interviewed by the New York times (laughs) about the Olympics. And um, yeah, that term actually came out of uh, sort of my, my, the way I approach, um, you know, different populations is to try to relate to the population. So, you know, when as a neurologist or neuroscientist or sleep doctor, you, you work in a you work in a different language. You're in a different country all day. So when you enter the world of weightlifting or you enter the world of Olympic sports, you have to understand you're a newcomer.
0: Mm-hmm. They,
1: they have words and ways of communicating that are very different than ours in, in our specialties. And so I, I listened to what they were saying. And, you know, there was a big concern within the, the Olympic weightlifting movement um, around uh, doping and around uh, cheating uh, absolutely from other countries and uh, it was such a big deal that they're even thinking may that the olympic weightlifting movement may be excluded from the olympics oh wow Um, yeah it was very significant so lots of conversations around this from the ceo of weightlifting uh to to the head coaches of weightlifting all about this and the athletes were very tuned into this so you know the idea that they were going up against athletes potentially that had um unfair advantages or out of of illegal advantages uh was really on on the the mind so you know while i was talking in this interview with the head coach uh we were both talking to the new york times i made the point to say you know what we're doing here with the olympic movement is providing sleep um, in a strategic and a proactive uh, way to improve performance in a way it's sort of like we're using sleep uh as a way to to do Uh, To create an advantage for our team, like when I use the term "sleep doping," um, which is a legal form of actually performance (laughs) enhancement. Let me be clear: nothing else is happening. There are no drugs involved. There is no exchange of plasma. Um, This is this is all about using basic neuroscientific principles associated with sleep duration, timing, and quality. And it it actually struck a chord with the athletes too. I think they they saw that as like a a meaningful concept that you know, we can combat this illegal use of, of of doping with a real good version, a natural version of doping, which is let's use sleep to our advantage. Um, and I, I, it just kind of took off from there. So I'm sorry if I started a, a word or, a, or a, a term that is somewhat derogatory to sleep.
0: Well, no, <laughs> but, it's uh, it's very it's, humbling it's when I, well, but it's yeah. very humbling, right? I came across this word and I was like, okay, I've been mm-hmm. practicing sleep medicine for like I don't know, 10, 15 years. And mm-hmm. I've never I've never heard of this before. <laughs> so it was very humbling when I'm like, okay, hang on. I've got to ask him what is So this? look,
1: I, I as a neuroanatomist, I started off life as a as a, a neuroanatomist in a neuroscience lab. And there are probably three or three to six different um, terms for things like diencephalon and thalamus. And I don't want to create a, yet another term for people to have to remember. So I'm sorry if that created a new term.
0: Oh bless you for not creating a new term. All that neuroanatomy. <laughs> yeah is like the bane of my existence
1: when I oh. have to research. <laughs> Sorry, it's like happens to be really my favorite part of life. But okay, yeah. <laughs> I know. So it,
0: <laughs> it sounds like you kind of got mm-hmm. into this field in a very organic way, but I I imagine <laughs> that there must have been some intention on your part mm. too.
1: Well, I, I mean, I stepped into neuroscience as the, the, I, I much more use I, I'm much more of a neuroscientist than a neurologist per se in terms of how I I think um, I. I When I was at Penn as an undergrad or as a as a grad student in my PhD program, I was finding that a lot of the information that was available um, in in the neuroscience world related to sleep. um, And I wasn't in a sleep lab. I wasn't doing research in a sleep program. Um, It was actually in a more of a pre-consciousness laboratory, looking at uh, the the under the the, uh, subcortical uh, visual systems associated with uh, pre-conscious vision. And it was really apparent to me that there was a lot of information in the science world uh, around sleep that had not been brought into the clinical world. And a lot of application, and as an MD-PhD, the application of sort of bench work to bedside is the understanding. It's it's what we do and what we want to do. So to me, it was sort of a natural evolution to go right from the basic science of sleep um, and try to apply the findings in real-world populations so that we could actually get uh, folks the benefit of sleep that they're not really getting on a, on a day-to-day basis. So for me, it was very organic in that sense because the basic science um, and the bench-to-bedside approach let itself lent itself to um, the application of basic science and sleep and circadian rhythm neurobiology directly into populations that had no idea that this mm. information was available. Um, And, you know, since then, I I mean, I spent most of my life in academics at at Emory and at uh, Penn, but I stepped out to do things in a way um, where we could start to bring that information directly into populations. And so I got interested in population sleep health and really into what we would, I would, if I were good to do it all over again, I'd probably get an MPH and do public health. (laughs) I mean, I think everybody in sleep medicine really is in a version of public Mm -hmm. health. What we're doing is is for the public's health. And it, it's not, um, you know, even our basic neuroscientists that are working in laboratories with rats and mice and, um, you know, and, and genetics, that's all in service to the understanding that sleep is incredibly important. And we're just trying to get people to understand that they have to use sleep um, in a way that is uh, different than our current culture is uh, misusing it. So I think that that's, that's really uh, why we're all, everybody in the the world of sleep medicine, circadian neurobiology and research, as well as clinical work, you're in public health to a certain degree, getting people to understand that this is a big part and the missing factor in their their regular lives.
0: So then when you talk about performance then, is that what kind of led you then to work with sports teams?
1: Mm, yeah. I I mean, part of it, as I said earlier, I, I was an athlete growing up and I, I was a rower and a wrote in in some somewhat of the elite level at one point in the 80s with the u.s teams and i I found that performance was just part of you know my life (laughs) and i always looked at um, athletic and physical as well as cognitive performance and studying things like buddhist thought and and meditation and the impact that that has on your mind and the way you think Um, these are all relatable so when i started doing this consciousness-based or pre-consciousness work um, with uh, animals At Penn, it it really kind of lent itself to understanding how we, um, how our nervous system actually is a part of our um, development and our our our, uh, ability to perform, and um, that led me to sort of put the two and two together. Before there was something like sports neurology, because back in the day when I was a fellow, there were no (laughs) sports neurologists that I knew, Um, but now there is, and Mm. I think that that led itself to. Uh, For sort of a natural extension, that you know, sleep as an element of performance of the nervous system is something that could be used by high performing individuals that makes it easier for everybody else to see that sleep is important. So, working with the Atlanta Falcons, working with national swim teams, national with the the weightlifters, um, you know, with other groups like CrossFit athletes and uh, high level uh, power lifters, that Led itself, it lent itself to really more of the public health approach, using people as an example. Um, sort of like I don't know if you've seen the video of of, of Shaquille O'Neal uh, at the Harvard program when mm-hmm. he obviously yeah. <laughs> so I mean, Shaq just because of his celebrity and his position in sports really changed the discussion to hey, this is you should normalize this. This is actually about your health, and you know, basketball players now take you know they sleep for twelve hours. LeBron James talks about how much he sleeps. Because that's a now considered uh, normalized within that population. So I looked at it the same way. If I'm gonna work with professional athletes, this is an opportunity to um, utilize their platform to help others understand how important this is um, and get them to sort of play the shack kind of card that, <laughs> hey, this is important. <laughs> Let's get out there and, t- and tell each other about this. Um, so, you know, I, I think uh, there's been a number of studies with NFL players and talking about. Uh, apnea, and especially in the big bodied athletes. Uh, But there's also a significant problem with insomnia within Mm. some of the populations and circadian rhythm problems uh, associated with, as I mentioned earlier, the late night rappers. that that's, that's a a difficulty for an athlete, even a young athlete to manage at that high level. Um, And and if we can do little things like just make these little changes in uh, like adding a little extra sleep or finding a sleep disorder, potentially, and treating it and seeing the effect, it's something that can be broadcast to um, the rest of us that uh, are not the uh, uh, elite level athletes, but who want to have a good life and quality of life is important. Um, And that's what sleep is all about.
0: So let's take a quick break. We'll have more with Dr. Dermer when we come back. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine.
1: Your membership in the AASM demonstrates your commitment to advancing sleep care and enhancing sleep health to improve lives. Stay connected to the thousands of colleagues that share your passion for healthy sleep. Renew your membership today at aasm.org.
0: Welcome back to Talking Sleep. We're talking to Dr. Jeff Dermer, sleep advisor to the U.S. Olympic weightlifting team about sleep in athletes. So when I was reading about you, I think the best quote I found was when you said that you took this concept of overtraining syndrome and you said it wasn't about overtraining, it's about under recovery. So Mm. I'm wondering, is this, when you have these little bits of information, like you said, the cocktail little bits of information, does that create the light bulb moment for people?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's actually a, a point, um, that I try to get across to even like my fellows and other docs I work with, which is, we have to communicate our science and communicate our clinical knowledge in ways that people can readily access it and use it on a day-to-day basis. And it's sort of like the idea of walking into you know the Olympic movement and expecting everybody to understand what the pedunculopontine nucleus is; they do have no idea what you're talking about. And That's the approach with the way we use words. So when I speak to a group about overtraining, they understand training. They understand how hard it is to train. And when they say overtraining, it's almost a badge of courage in some way or a badge of of honor because they've trained so hard. But it's sort of the same problem you see with corporate America. Mm -hmm. Um, People, you know, working 24-7 or working into the night, doing late nights and not getting sleep. That's sort of a badge of honor. This changes the, the discussion. So, within the population of, of elite athletes, overtraining is an issue, but they don't really recognize what the actual problem is. Mm-hmm. It's not your training, it's your recovery. So, if you haven't allowed your body to recover properly, you will end up overtrained in basically overactivating your. Your sympathetic nervous system and imbalance, you have an imbalance in that autonomic uh, system. You're not actually able to bring up parasympathetic and maintain a balance that um, you can control. So, you know, that's something I suffered with as an athlete uh, growing up, but also I know a lot of um, these athletes have that issue. But explaining it to them in those words makes much more sense. It's it's sort of the same thing like when I work with, um, you know, corporate executives or truck drivers or airline pilots. I talk about sleep, not as the end of today. Don't think of it as like the thing that you did at the end of your day. Think of it as the beginning of tomorrow. If Mm -hmm. you think about it as the beginning and just frame shift, think about cognitively frame shifting a little bit. What I'm doing right now is for tomorrow. Oh, that makes sense. Now I have to actually plan it. I have to prioritize it and I have to max optimize it just like I optimize everything else. (laughs) So (laughs) if you think about it that way, it's just a small switch of thought, but it does create a little bit more priority around sleep.
0: Yeah. I love that. So, so I grew up in Calgary and we had the 88 winter Olympics and, Mm -hmm. and and this might just be, you know, me misremembering, but it felt like there were athletes in the Olympic Mm -hmm. village for like weeks. Before yes, the Olympics.
1: Yes, yes they were. <laughs> and, That's and changed. So, yeah.
0: Right. So with COVID now, like how mm-hmm. do you help your athletes then acclimate to the new time zone? I mean, this is a decent time
1: zone change. Yeah. Yeah. So when we, we had a plan for the Tokyo Olympics um, just last summer that uh, presented a huge challenge the big challenge was they couldn't be in in the country <clears throat> you know uh, at the village for mm. more than three or four days or, or a week before their event and then actually right after their events over within two days they had to be out so okay. it was a very um, limited amount of time they're allowed to be in the village now that doesn't mean that they couldn't be in country so some teams would fly their whole group to you know another part of japan where then they would Uh, have a a scheduled workout and acclimate within country. Um, The problem is all of the regulations this time made it very difficult even to do those kinds of camps. So what we did um, for this group was actually had a camp in Honolulu, Hawaii. uh, And uh, we basically brought every individual from the the Olympic weightlifting team that was going to the Olympics, um, put them on a schedule that would slowly but surely uh, adjust them towards mm. the west uh, in Tokyo. Uh, so that they were a couple hours to three hours delayed compared to their natural time in the United States, wherever they were. And then when they flew to Hawaii, um, they came about two weeks or so before their anticipated event, two to three weeks. And they'd spend two to three weeks in the Hawaii at the Hawaii camp doing their workouts, getting their food, in a slowly uh, delayed, a further delayed Western schedule, mm. so that once and there at the same time, while we're delaying them slightly um, on a day, week, day to day, week to week basis, um, we are also increasing sleep time on an average of an average of fifteen minutes every week or so. So we were using the concept of you know uh, the chronobiological concepts of getting closer to the time zone, but also. Um, and using, you know, shifting, of uh, using darkness as a major shifting acti- activity, but using light in the daytime as much as possible to activate later. Um, but we were also using the banking concept of adding slight amounts, slightly more sleep. And in that controlled environment, which is really much a bubble in Hawaii, uh, we were able to get athletes pretty much adjusted to, um, you know, uh, within three or so hours of of huh. Tokyo, So when they were flying, instead of it being a seven hour difference uh, from Honolulu or six and a half hour difference from Honolulu, it actually was only a, a two to three hour difference because they'd been working out, you know, as late as 10 o'clock at night oh, wow. and they'd be getting up as late as 10 o'clock in the morning. So their whole schedule was thrown off towards the West and that allowed us to get them comfortable. Um, so when they landed in country, it, had, it was as if they were there or they flew two time zones. It's um, fantastic, and it it led to a a big difference, I think, within the team. can't Can't say for for sure what the <laughs> the impact of anything. One thing is, it's not an experiment, but uh, I do I do think we had a good outcome this this time around, and we're going to follow that same pattern now when we go to France uh, next summer in twenty twenty four, two summers from now, and um, that's going to be a very different uh, <laughs> circadian challenge yeah. because we're not delaying; we're going to be advancing. So. That's going to be tougher on, uh, on most of the crew, uh, getting there. And so we'll, we'll figure out a, a concept to get, uh, folks in country early and then increase their sleep duration.
0: So do you use any, um, consumer sleep technology?
1: Um, I I'm hesitant to just use one because <laughs> they're all <laughs> consumer based right there. none right. of these are, are clinical grade or medically indicated or FDA approved. And so it's kind of hard to rely on, on these things. What I do use, um, and I, you know, I, I'm happy to kind of talk to anybody about this if they want to talk more about devices. It's sort of what I do in my day job. <clears throat> but the, um, the use of, of uh, the device that we did put in place, which was the Aura Ring, um, is something that I wanted to engage the athletes in uh, sort of understanding, using it as an educational resource more than anything else. And also as a behavioral uh, change, uh, it's something to help people with behavioral change. Because it's, I often talk about sleep from the perspective that there's duration of sleep, timing of sleep, and quality of sleep. And all three of those interact um, with circadian rhythm. So those three concepts um, I can actually break down for the athletes in a way that's meaningful so that they understand duration and timing are things you can really control with behavior. Quality can be affected by behavior, but it's certainly, if you have quality problems, we may be talking about a medical issue that we can help to diagnose. And we certainly did sleep testing on a number of the athletes to find things like sleep apnea. But the the idea of the consumer devices is really engaging the athletes in the behaviors of sleep. And, uh, you know, we certainly didn't want to stimulate orthosomnia <laughs> or <laughs> the inappropriate use of devices. But, you know, that that's another thing we talk about, because oftentimes they're already using devices like their mm-hmm. their phones in the middle of the night. And it's creating um, a, a problem in the bedtime period, because these are, you know, f- folks that are a little bit famous in their area of the world. And people are they have social media and lots of people following them. So you know the nighttime tends to be the time when they have time to do that stuff and so i had to kind of switch their thought process around and get them to wear these rings at night and then they started seeing the impact mm. and you know that actually created some awareness so it didn't use the rings in some you know uh you know clinical sense there was no you know data downloads and i'm looking at heart rate variability and tuning them right <laughs> you know nothing like that it was much more to engage them uh, mm. and also i think that's likely that the best use of these devices, even in our patient populations, is just engaging them in the concept of sleep and then finding those with both and helping to redirect them a little bit. But, you know, that's, that's, I think the opportunity to bring things like um, consumer electronics into your, even your patient care. Um, same way I used it with the athletes. It's, it's really about engaging people in a conversation about their behavior and if they're taking it seriously or not, and, you know, data can help to, to support good, good behavior change.
0: So, do you have any advice for our colleagues that would like to do something like you're doing maybe at their local level
1: or, Mm -hmm. or different levels? Well, I, I think, you know, everybody has to follow their own interests, right? This is something I've been doing since I was a kid, being an athlete. My kids are athletes. They swam in national teams and things. So it's, it's a kind of part of um, you know, how I, my, my vibration, I live in Denver, Colorado for a reason because I like to be outside <laughs> and I like to work, you know, climb mountains and things. That's, it's really about your interest. So if you're a, you know, an, an athlete or you you felt very, you know, you've followed sports your whole life. It's something you're really interested in. It, it's worth you know, finding that, uh, orthopedic surgeon friend mm. <laughs> that works with the medical, it works as the, uh, you know, the team doctor, even in the, you know, your kids sports programs. I look at it this way. I, I worked with, uh, the dynamo swim team in Georgia when in Atlanta, when I worked there, when I lived there and worked at Emory and my kids were all dynamo swimmers. And I worked with the head coach for the entire team of 600 swimmers to make oh, sure wow. that we were helping their school start times, you know, cause they, Georgia didn't have advanced, didn't have delayed school start times. So they'd have these five o'clock in the morning swims for high school students. And it's just completely inappropriate for Mm -hmm. their chronobiology. So I educated them and educated the team. And we started to experiment with, you know, different um, routines and changing those routines. And if you have an open-minded coach of a major program, even your kids program, it's a good way to get started in that um, sort of bringing the public health message of sleep uh, to the individual teams because you know the first thing i saw is i have you know one of my kids what w- was really suffering with these early morning practices and she was in 8th grade and swimming at a national level and i i basically you know she was dealing with ADHD at the time too and it was just throwing off everything and i i went to the head coach and said hey i, do, I don't think this is going to work for her why don't we stop the morning practices for her and let's see how she does and lo and behold after she stopped those early morning practices as an eighth grader and she was doing afternoons only, her, her behavior got better, her schooling, was she was a great student to begin with, but she was finding it much easier, and her swimming improved. So yeah. <laughs> coach, coach was, uh, was impressed, and we started to uh, you know reduce the number of those morning practices. Instead of four or five a week, it went down to two, and that still allowed the team to get enough uh, practice time in, so they were highly competitive on the national stage.
0: So is this the same daughter that presented something at APSS a few years ago?
1: <laughs> well, actually, I have two daughters. The oldest <laughs> is the one I was just mentioning. Both of them were, uh, you know, high-level swimmers. Uh, my middle daughter went, uh, finished up at Emory um, University. Oldest was at University of Virginia. So they were both, you know, D1 swimmers. And uh, Julia, my middle one, uh, who went from uh, Virginia to Emory to finish her, her degree she's interested in getting an MPH. Um, did a a bit of sleep research in her summer internship at the CDC uh, with a a fellow uh, person in the the epidemiology department. And she did a study that I think was pretty well covered back in the 2016-17 period at the Baltimore meeting where she presented on how uh, the application of the Framingham study construct of sleep, uh, of, of heart age, uh, and using all the different risk factors that go associated with the age of your heart, like cholesterol level, diabetes, hypertension, obesity. Um, and And it was yearly used as a public health concept to see, you know, can we get people to look at their <clears throat> their heart risk factors as a part of the age of their heart and change them? Well, Julia took the idea <laughs> because we, you know she lives in a sleep research household, <laughs> that hey, maybe I could use the sleep duration. Um, because that's always something she'd seen in all the papers I've shown her, and she's really interested in that area, that duration actually predicts a lot of these um, potentially poor outcomes if you sleep too late or too few or too little. Um, And uh, she applied that uh, using CDC data um, to the Framingham study and found that actually once you use duration of sleep and put that in as a a construct, uh, those people sleeping less than uh, six and a half hours on a regular basis had significantly increased heart age. Um, And it was something that kind of hit the scene and a lot of folks heard about that study. Um, So she got a little bit of fame as a junior in college. Good for her. (laughs) At a sleep, yeah, no, I'm very very proud of her. She's finishing her MPH at George Washington this year and she's doing um, communications. So she's gonna go back to the CDC and help them with communications, I think. That's the ultimate goal is to get the communications right in healthcare.
0: And that's so critically important, as we've seen during this pandemic, right? Yeah,
1: exactly. So final thoughts? Mm, Final thoughts. Well, I I like the idea of us all in sleep um, understanding we have a public health role to play. Um, And, you know, like my friend here in Denver, Lisa Meltzer, uh, who is a a clinical psychologist and a research uh, friend of mine, uh, we go back for many years, has done. She took her research uh, to the level of the school board. And showed them that school start times have a major impact on development on all different outcomes associated with uh, kids in uh, in the middle school and high school. And now in next year, twenty twenty three, the Denver Public School System is going to start children no late, no earlier than eight twenty in the morning in the middle school and high school ages. So that's the kind of thing that we have the opportunity to do as a specialty. Mm-hmm. And all everybody listening to this has this opportunity to to really. You know, think about yourself as a an agent of change because our culture is backwards, and we're getting an average of sleep. You know, we look at the average sleep times of working adults and something like six point two hours a night. That's just not adequate. And you know, we look back sixty years ago; it was eight hours. So, what happened? Um, it's up to us to actually integrate where we can and and speak the language of the people that you're talking to. It's one thing I learned working with all these different groups, from truck drivers to pilots to you know, military folks and professional athletes speak their language, learn their language, and and try not to use words like pedunculopontine nucleus. <laughs> try to try to speak like <laughs> they do, and 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 get into their their thought process because that's how we're going to get change. Um, as much as policies and and laws and uh, uh, governmental uh, change is part of it, it's also cultural. It's just about how we re- regard sleep. Is it? is it important enough to, uh, to take seriously and prioritize?
0: Well, thanks for taking the time to talk with us about this really interesting and timely topic. You know, Olympians work with so many trainers and mm-hmm. really there's probably no reason that a sleep trainer shouldn't yeah. be included.
1: I think that's a, a great way to do it. And you can start just going to your local CrossFit gym or <laughs> your local <laughs> gym and, and go there and tell them, you know, if, you know, sometimes they have these little competitions within the the, the workout groups and they say, okay, if, let's see for the next month, how many points you get for eating good foods. Well, guess what? Throw in sleep, get at least seven and a half hours of sleep. And everybody gets seven or more hours of sleep each night, gets a point and at the end of the month. See how, how, uh, how good people feel. And actually I've done this once. And it was amazing. Everybody was just blown away by how well they, how well they performed, how, how good they felt. And it was done right there at the local level. That's awesome. Yeah. Be creative. Have fun.
0: Thanks for listening to Talking Sleep, brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service. And if you enjoyed this episode, Please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, email us at podcast at AASM.org. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Seema Kosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well.